what we talked about or what happened in the, the, the chapter was uh, Jesus goes there in Jerusalem to the pool of Bethesda and the house of mercy, that's what Bethesda means. Jesus meets this man, heals him of his ailment, whatever was going wrong, uh, allows him to rise up and to walk and to carry his mat home, something that he hadn't done in a long, long time. Restores his health, gives him an opportunity at life, and that's going great. And this guy is excited about that, except some people are not so excited about that. The religious leaders of the day, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they take issue with Jesus because of the day that he healed on. He healed on the Sabbath. And they were more concerned about a quote-unquote broken law than a healed man. And their eyes were in the wrong place. And so Jesus spends the rest of chapter 5 giving his defense I have these witnesses. I have God the Father. I have the miracles that I do. And even the Old Testament speaks of me. I am the Son of God. He proclaims boldly. And then they take further issue. Not only did He heal on the Sabbath, but now He's proclaiming to be the Son of God. This man needs to die. And that's what they experience in their their hearts. And that's kind of where chapter 5 left off. That's where we're going to pick up chapter 6. Okay, You there? John chapter 6? I was going to tell you before we got started that uh, um, I, I considered saying, you know, if you leave your Bible here during the week, shame on you, you should take it home. And if you do leave your Bible here, what we're going to do is we're going to highlight all the weird verses so that when you die and your kids get your Bible, they're going to wonder what's up with you, you know? <laughs> so take your Bible home. And I'm going to say, I'm not going to say that because I leave my Bible here. I have one that I leave here at church and I have one that I have at home. And perhaps some of you do as well. So <laughs> never mind all of that. But uh, if you if you flip in your pages open and say, I never highlighted that verse well, that'd be your handy pastor. <laughs> Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the day and we thank you for the opportunity to gather here in your name. We thank you for this week of celebrating our Savior being born. And Lord, uh, with it comes a lot of extra work and a lot of wearying things, Lord. So today, we just want to sit in your presence. We want to breathe you in, God. We want to allow your spirit to work in our hearts and with our, in our lives, Lord. We want to open your word and allow it to mold and to shape us. So I pray that this would not just be a wasted hour, Lord, that we aren't just putting in time here at church, God, but that it is our hope to grow in you through this time. I ask, Father, that you would help me to rightly divide your word and that we would see that you care about each and every one of us and that you love us beyond what we even understand, God. Thank you for your grace and your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen. John chapter 6, verse 1. It says, After these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Then a great multitude followed him because they saw his signs, which he performed on those who were diseased. So Jesus now leaving Jerusalem, it says after these things, those things that occurred in Jerusalem, the the healing of the man at at the pool, it says after these things, but it doesn't tell us how long after these things. And that's one of the pictures we don't fully get from John is it could be the next day. It could be three months have passed. It really doesn't tell us. John isn't exactly chronological. And so, after these things, at some point after he healed the man at the pool, now he's headed back to where he does the majority of his um, ministry up near the Sea of Galilee. 
And what's interesting, we're, we're headed into Jesus feeding the 5,000. I think most of you are familiar with that story. But that's where we're headed here in the, in the first part of chapter 6. What's interesting is the, all four Gospels talk about this story. It's one of the few stories that all four Gospels hit. And what we read in Luke's account of this time, in Luke chapter 9, is that Jesus was actually getting away from the crowd. His hope was to go up onto the mountainside with he and his disciples to kind of breathe, like to kind of step back and to say, let me pause and reflect here. But he doesn't get that opportunity because the multitude sees where he's going. They see the, disease, the diseases that he's cured, the miracles that he's performed, and they go after him. What I like about this experience is Jesus doesn't, hey, I'm going to the mountainside, you need to leave me alone. Back off, everybody. I'll be back in a couple days and then we'll deal with it. Jesus doesn't do that. He sees the multitude. He has compassion on them and He meets them at their need. He's flexible. Though He wanted to go to the mountainside to be alone or to be with His disciples, He sets that aside for a time to minister to those that God brings into His presence and into His life. And so what we see in Jesus is flexibility. And that's something that you and I need to have. Chuck Smith, the man that started Calvary Chapel years ago, penned his own beatitude, if you would. If you're familiar with the beatitudes from Matthew chapter 5, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek, blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are... He penned one that said, blessed are the flexible, for they shall not be broken. And that's the attitude, that's the life that you and I need to live. That's the example we get from Jesus right here. As though He had plans, different things happen. And sometimes that happens in my life and in your life. And if you're a person of, I have to have my routine, otherwise my life is completely upended, I get that because I am that person to some degree. But those that live a surrendered life to Christ have to be willing to allow their routine to be upended at times. You have to allow flexibility in your heart to allow God to perhaps present something that you weren't expecting. But pastor, I eat my, you know, I get up at 8:05 and I eat my oatmeal at 8:07 and I put my socks on at 8:09 and I'm out the door at 8:11 and that's my life and I do it every day and that's the way it goes. There is no room for flexibility. And my question would be, what if somebody called and needed you at 8:08? Can that person speak into your life? Can that person come into your life and are you flexible enough to allow that to happen? We see in Jesus an example that He is, and so we are called to be as well. Blessed are the flexible. Allow God to move over our hearts and, and perhaps change our plans. He's always about the Father's business. We need to be as well. And so it says in verse 3, And Jesus went up on the mountain, and there He sat with His disciples. Now the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near. I like this as he sees this throng of people coming, some 5,000 men, doesn't count women and children, maybe 10,000 people, maybe 12,000 people, hard to say exactly how many people are coming toward him. As he sees this, he's going to sit with his disciples and he's going to use this experience to mold and to shape them, to teach them, and to show them some things. And God uses our lives' experiences as well to mold and to shape us. It says in verse 5, Then Jesus lifted up His eyes, and seeing a great multitude coming toward Him, He said to Philip, 
Where should we buy bread that these may eat? But this he said to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Now, here's an opportunity, a learning moment. We homeschool our kids, and so we, we say that you know school is always in session. There's always an opportunity to learn something. It doesn't matter if it's 8 o'clock in the morning or 8 o'clock at night. There's a chance to mold and shape a kid's life. We're going to take advantage of it. And right now we're having school and school's in session. And so we give them a chance to learn. And so that's what Jesus does as he sees the multitude coming. He's like, hey, uh, hey, Philip, um, they're hungry. What are you going to do about it? <laughs> now, knowing that Jesus knows what he's going to do, it almost sounds cruel, doesn't it? Because, hey, Philip, here comes, you know, 10,000 people. Here comes, well, at least 5,000 that we know for sure. Let's go with that number. Here comes 5,000 people. Here comes an impossible situation, Philip. What are you going to do about it? And Jesus kind of takes a step back. Well, what do you, that's kind of, no, it's not cruel. Don't look at it as cruel. That's not the way it is at all. What Jesus is doing is he's allowing Philip a front row seat to watch him work. And God does that with our lives as we are surrendered to him, as we say, Lord, have your way in my heart, have your way in my life. That provides for you and I a front row seat to allow us to see God move, to allow us to see the way God's going to work. He knows the solution. He knows what he's going to do. But he, he involves Philip. He pulls Philip into the conversation to say, watch this. Let me draw you close to this. He sought to involve Philip in the process of the solution. He does the same thing with you and I. He allows us the privilege of sitting on the front row and watching him work. So then the next question is, yes, he involves Philip, but why Philip? Why He's got 12 guys sitting there. Why did he pick Philip? Well, you do a little bit of research where he was, Bethsaida. That's where he was near Bethsaida. Bethsaida is where Philip is from. And so as this multitude comes, as there's not a McDonald's there on the side of the mountain, what are we going to do? He goes to Philip, one who's familiar with the region. Hey, do you know somebody that can provide dinner for this, this many people? And Philip's going to look at it and go, I don't. <laughs> I don't think everybody in Bethsaida could provide enough dinner for all these people. He was from the region. So he's asking, asking Philip, hey, where's a good place to get chow? So verse 7, Philip now assesses the situation. He says, Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them that every one of them may have a little. Okay, you got it? No, not, we don't deal in denarii, do we? <laughs> What's a denarii? How much is a denarii? How much are we talking about? How much bread is 200 denarii's worth? Well, a denarii was a common man's day wages in those days. So as you went out to work the field, as you went out to serve in one way or another, your payment for a day's worth of labor was a denarii. So Philip is saying two-thirds of a year's salary of one man wouldn't be enough money to buy enough bread for everybody to have a little. This is an impossible situation is what Philip is saying. How are we going to deal with this? Of course, Jesus knows what he's going to do. And then he's probably thinking on top of that, there isn't enough restaurants around to, to provide everybody the food. And what I want us to see in this is the way Philip reacts 
is he assesses the situation and he thinks of the most minimal solution possible. Did you catch that? Even if we had 200 denarii, it wouldn't be enough to give everybody just a crumb. To give everybody a little bit. It wouldn't be a meal. It wouldn't even barely be a snack is what he's saying. And he's looking for the, the easiest or the smallest or the least consuming way to solve this problem. And in that, in his mind at least, he's limiting what God can do. He, he's, he's only thinking in the realm of the physical or only thinking of what, what could, you know, the, the smallest possible solution. And when I read that, it reminded me of the man at the pool of Bethesda. Bethesda, sorry. Bethesda's where they're at now. Bethesda's where they were. Tough to remember. At the pool of Bethesda, do you remember when Jesus walked up to the man, the man laying there, he asks him a question. He says, do you want to be healed? Do you remember what the man's response was? I don't have anybody to put me in the pool. That's not the question Jesus asked. Jesus didn't say, do you want me to put you in the pool? Do you want somebody to put you in the pool that you may be healed? The question He asked was, do you want to be healed? And in that, we saw that the man was limiting the way that God was going to move. The only way I can be healed is if somebody puts me in the pool. Well, that's not the case at all. We see the similar thing with Philip now. To say the only possible solution, and that's if everybody gets a little bit of bread is if we had 200 denarii. Judas is keeping the treasury over here. I think he's probably stealing from us. And and we don't even have enough to feed us 13. How are we going to feed 5,000? And he's, at least in his mind, he's limiting what God may do. Dangerous ground to be on. So we see in verse 8 then, the solution began to unfold. says, one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a lad who has five barley loaves and two small fish, but what are they among so many? Now, first of all, I love Andrew here. And I love Andrew every time we see him. He's always bringing somebody to Jesus. We need some more Andrews around here. I need to be more like Andrew in my life. Always bringing somebody to Jesus. Andrew was the one that brought his brother, Simon Peter, to Jesus. And now, here in this multitude, he's like, hey, here's a little boy. He brings him to Jesus. May we be like Andrew. Always bringing people to Jesus. But he says, hey, here's a kid. He brought his lunch. But again, limiting, just like he did, like Philip did. (laughs) What good is this guy, this kid's lunch? When there's 5,000 people to feed, how, how, what's going to happen here? And so just so we can kind of get the picture, let's look at this lunch. It says it's five barley loaves and two small fish. How much is that? Well, the barley loaves are not 47 feet across, and they're going to break it into, you know, a thousand pieces each and then divide it. It's not like you're getting these huge loaves. A barley loaf was, was a small biscuit, basically, about that size. Second of all, it was barley. Now, you guys probably, some of you like barley soup or you like having barley. It's, it's a good thing. In that day and age, barley was only fit for animals. It wasn't meant for human consumption. And so that this boy had barley loaves meant he was dirt poor. And this was really all that he had. And they had some barley left over that they didn't feed the animals with, so they made some cakes together, they cooked them in the fire, and it became this kid's lunch. That and two small fish. It would be like if you and I went into Kroger today, we went back to the deli section, and you guys have seen them, the little Lunchable, right? 
the little little pieces of Ritz crackers and the two little pieces of cheese or whatever they are. And, and that's about the size we're talking about here. This kid does not have a, a full meal in front of him. He's got a little sack lunch. He brought his Lunchable to the party. And Andrew's like, well, what good is that? <laughs> Jesus says, watch what good it is. Andrew's limited vision as well. Verse 10 says, Then Jesus said, Make the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. Picnic. So the men sat down in number about 5,000. I love this. Jesus unfolds the solution in the midst of them. The, the disciples, Andrew, Philip, probably the rest of them, can't see what the solution is going to be. They're doubting exactly what's going to happen. Even though they've seen Him do this many miracles already, they don't expect the unexpected in this moment. And so they're just probably doubting, yet Jesus involves them. And He does that when you and I doubt and question as well. Even if we have fears, even if we have questions, God will involve us if we allow Him to. And so He involves them. He says, tell them to sit down. That's kind of cool. Kind of reminds me of Psalm 23, yeah? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. That's exactly what He's doing here. He's providing Himself to be the good shepherd to these 5,000 people. Have a seat. One of the other Gospel accounts would tell us that He divides the crowd into groups of 50 so that they're more manageable, so that the, the men can serve. That's a good thing. God is a God of organization. God is a God of order. And so we see that in this moment. And He involves the disciples. In verse 11, and Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples, and the disciples to those sitting down, and likewise of the fish, as much as they wanted. Bonafide miracle right there, ladies and gentlemen. He takes this kid's lunchable, gives thanks for it, and it multiplies, and everybody eats as much as they want. It all starts with what? giving thanks. Jesus takes the, the boy's lunch and gives thanks to God the Father for providing a way. Do you? Do we? Is that our lives? Do we pause before each meal and look at it and say, hey, God, You provided this for us? Do we wake up each morning and say, Lord, I've got breath in my lungs. Thank You. Do we go to our job each day and say, hey, Lord, You provided an income for me. Thank You. I was really, I was really humbled. I was talking to our guide while we were in Ethiopia about the way the pay structure works there and, and exactly what's expected of employees. And it's completely different than it is here. If you have a job in Ethiopia, you are expected to show up every day. If you don't show up every day, you're fired. Unless there's not something to do like the guides would have days off. But in order to receive your pay, you are expected to be there all the time. That's the way they work there. It's not about workers' rights or, or anything like that. They just, you want a job? You come work every day. And, uh, and, and they, they look at it as a privilege, not a burden to have a job. They're grateful for the opportunity to earn an income. And I kind of need to learn a lesson from that. They're thankful for that God has provided for them in having a job. And so do we pause and do we look at our blessings and say, thank you, Lord, do we spend the last moments of our days awake say, God, You brought me through another day. Thank You for Your grace and mercy. I pray that I've honored You. 
We give thanks in all situations, even when they seem impossible. Because that's where these guys were at. He involves the disciples. They distributed. They are the ones that passed things out. They're the ones that served these people. They, they ate, they ate as much as they wanted. The word in the Greek there is they glutted. <laughs> they stuffed themselves. Back in the day, I don't know, people used to get dressed for Thanksgiving. Like you were going over to grandma's house, you put on the nice slacks and a nice shirt and sweater or maybe some nice shoes. Does anybody do that anymore? Wow, really? Some people do. I I threw that away a long time ago, and I'd go for the elastic waistband, (laughs) right? Because that way you can stuff all the more in. Yes, I will have a second piece of pie. Thank you very much. And I will soon slip into a food coma. Hey, resourceful, that's what that is. (laughs) They ate as much as they wanted. They glutted. These guys were stuffed. 5,000 men strong were stuffed by five barley loaves and two little fish. Miracle. It says in verse 12, so when they were filled, he said to his disciples, gather up the fragments that remain so nothing is lost. Another good picture for you and I. Sorry to keep breaking it every verse, but there's so much that we can glean from these verses. God is a God of resourcefulness. He he is a good steward of the things that He has. And you and I should be as well. I'm not calling Christians to be cheap. In fact, I would encourage you not to be cheap. We have that moniker on us. You understand that? That the world outside looks at Christians as cheap people. I want to break that. I want to overcome that. If you ask anybody in the food service industry what the shift they don't want to work is, it's Sunday afternoons. Because those people coming out of church and going to Cracker Barrel are so stinking cheap, they won't even tip the 20% that they deserve. Nobody wants to work Sunday afternoon. I want to overcome that. I'm not saying, and this is not saying that God is calling us to be cheap. Frugal, yes. Good stewards of what God has given us. Absolutely. But not cheap. Okay? Sometimes God calls us to be generous. And that's what we see here. God is generous. He's giving them as much as they want. And now they're collecting what's left over. They don't just leave it in the field. Therefore, they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with the fragment of five barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten. doesn't tell us how big the baskets were. I picture baskets, you know, 12 baskets. They could have been baskets. I don't know. Does it matter? No, not really. It doesn't matter. What's interesting is they gathered more left over than they had to start. Proof of a miracle, right? They had 12 basketfuls. Why 12? 12 disciples. Each one of them holding a basket, reminding them of what God has done. Showing them, giving them a tangible thing to see the miracle that God has performed in this moment. Reminding them that He is able. Verse 14, Then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, this is the the 5,000, says, this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. What is he speaking of there? Well, Deuteronomy chapter 18, if you go back into the Old Testament, Moses prophesies of a man that would come later, a man that was greater than even Moses, one who would come to rule and to reign. So I think as they were sitting there on the mountainside and they see God providing for them meat and bread, just like He did in the wilderness, 
they're reminded, hey, this reminds me of the days of old when Moses led the, our, our forefathers out into the wilderness and God provided them, you know, the quail and the, and the manna. And here we have fish and, and, and barley loaves as much as we can possibly eat. Perhaps this is the man that Moses spoke of, the prophet that was to come. Truly, this is the man. And so they're going to look to make him the king. It says in verse 15, Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force and to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. So now he does step back from the crowd because they want to take him by force and elevate him to be something that he isn't called to be at this point. They recognize him as a prophet. They want to make him king, but they've left out an important part of the puzzle. Jesus is also our high priest. And so he needs to wait to fulfill that role when he becomes the sacrifice on our behalf. And in that, so at this moment, as they want to make him king, he steps back and he says, no, 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 my time is not yet. Daniel would tell us his time is very specific and his, the days are ordered in, 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 in an exact account. And so Jesus steps back from the crowd and said, no, you're not doing that yet. You see, their hope was, what, what they wanted to do, they wanted to elevate Jesus to be a king, to raise up the Israelites, to overcome the Roman rule. And once again, they're limiting God to what they think God should do. They're limiting and they're saying, we want you to rule, raise us up so that we might become a power again. And Jesus said, no, that's not big enough a sacrifice. So that's not big enough a goal for my life. It's not just that I'm here to rule and reign over Rome. It's not just I'm here to conquer Rome. I'm here to conquer sin and death. A far greater foe than even Rome. And so he steps back at this moment. God's timing cannot be forced. All right, now we're going to go to another familiar story. Jesus walking on the water. It says in verse 16, Now when evening came, His disciples went out, went down to the sea. They got into the boat and went over the sea toward Capernaum. And it was already dark. And Jesus had not come to them. So this account or this story, Jesus walking on the water, it's also told in Matthew chapter 14 and in Mark chapter 6. And then, of course, here, John chapter 6. And I would encourage you maybe after church today or this afternoon, read all three accounts to kind of get the full picture. But what we see from one of the other accounts is that not that they just went down to the sea on their own accord. Jesus actually sends them out onto the sea. Okay, in, in one of the other accounts, I can't remember if it's the Mark account or the Matthew account, but Jesus sends them out onto the sea. He knows that a storm is going to arise. But this wasn't a big deal for them. These guys, the majority of them were fishermen. They're used to going out at night on the sea. No big deal. I, I don't fish, but you guys that do, why is it that fish want to eat at 4 o'clock in the morning? Could we... I mean, could we fix that somehow? Could we retrain them, you know, like 11-ish? You know, hey, that's, when, that's when fish should bite. But for some reason, fishing is better at night. I don't get it. Whatever. That's fine. Have at it. So these guys were used to rowing out in the middle of the, you know, middle of the sea at night. No big deal for them. Jesus wasn't with them. They weren't necessarily concerned about that. But then the storm arise. And one of the other accounts would even tell us that Jesus sent the storm. It says in verse 18, then the sea arose because of a great, because a great wind was blowing. Not just a small storm here. This is a mighty wind and a huge storm. The, the seas are swelling. This is, this is even dangerous territory for these seasoned fishermen. 
It's it's a storm came arise arose. So when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near the boat, and they were afraid. All right, so they're rowing, and they're rowing, and they're rowing, and they're battling this wind, and they're battling this storm, and they're doing everything they can. It says they've gone three or four miles. What Mark would tell us is that by now, when Jesus comes out walking on the water, it's the fourth watch of the night. That means it's somewhere between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. They've been rowing all night, and all they've gone is three or four miles. That's halfway across the, the, the sea that they're crossing. That's uh, The normal trek would take less than a night to go all the way across. It would not take very long to go from one side to the other, but because of this storm, they, they have only merely gotten halfway. And they see Jesus walking on the water. Now, Pause there for a second, because you seasoned veterans, those of you who have been in church for a long time, you read this and you're like, oh yeah, Jesus walked on the water. Put your feet in their shoes for a second. You're rowing, and it's dark, and you guys are singing the songs, you know, yo-ho-ho, and uh, never mind. And, And so you're rowing and rowing, and things are hard, the storm is rising, things are getting difficult, Peter's probably yelling, because that's what Peter does, and then everybody's pushing against this, and they're trying to get, or they're not getting very far, and all of a sudden they look up, and somebody's coming. In the middle of the night, in the middle of the dark, in the middle of the water, somebody's coming. I'm sorry, if I saw that, I'd have to change my shorts. <laughs> I'd flip, you know, that's that would freak me out, right? In fact, one of the other gospel accounts said they thought they saw a ghost. So they look at each other and they're like, Zoinks! Hey, Scoob! Ghost! That's the best I got. I'm sorry. I was considering, do I go, do I go, um, Princess Bride and say, I think somebody's coming up on us. That's inconceivable. I figured not enough of you have yet watched the Princess Bride, so we'll go there. We'll go with Scooby Doo. Everybody knows Scooby Doo. And so they see the ghost. So I say, Scooby, Raggy? Uh, all right. It's the best I got. It's a ghost. I think I would flip out. And you probably would too. You're just too proud to admit it. (laughs) Jesus comes walking up to the boat. Insane. So verse 20 says, But He said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Underline that in your Bible. Over 100 times the Word of God tells you, fear not. Do not be afraid. He knows our hearts. He knows our anxieties. He knows the things that disturbs us. And even in this midst of this storm, this raging thing, this, this Jesus power over the physical comes walking up and He says, don't be afraid. We've had a, a hard year at Calvary Chapel, Columbus. Some storms that we've had to weather. Some difficult things that we've had to walk through. And if I were honest with you, 
that first Sunday after Pastor Dave passed away, when I stood up here, I was scared to death. We had had two years of preparation. We kind of knew that should the Lord not intervene to heal him, that he was going home. And that there would be some Sunday where I would take over and, and gracefully uh, David allowed me to prepare for those two years by teaching on Wednesday. But all that, in that moment of that first Sunday, I stood up here trembling. And that whole week prior to, I was scared. Because I'm taking over a church and I, and I have a, a responsibility to lead people to God. And that's not a, a light burden to take. And over and over and over as I came to God and I said, Lord, what, how, how, what do I do? I feel like, I feel like Solomon, I don't, when, at his young age, when he said, I don't know how to go in or come out. I don't know how to do this, God. Over and over, God kept taking me back to Joshua. And as Joshua took over from Moses, as you begin to read the book of Joshua, I think a dozen times in the first couple, three chapters, it says, Joshua, do not be afraid. Be bold. Do not be afraid. Be bold. And in that time of, of nervousness in my life and of anxiety in my life, God comforted me in a very, very real way. And I can testify to you, He will comfort you as well. He comes to us in the storm and He says, do not be afraid. It is I. And we can rest our affection on Him. We can set our cares on Him. And He is a very real help in danger. It is I. Do not be afraid. One of the other accounts would tell us that Jesus was watching this occur from the mountainside. He had His eyes on them the whole time. And that's a good reminder to you and I that even in the midst of our storms and our trials, He is always watching for us, watching us. Even a step further, think about this. Romans chapter 8, Hebrews chapter 7 would tell us He prays on our behalf. That Jesus, yes, He defeated sin and death. Yes, He conquered those things, but that wasn't the end of His job. He now sits at the right hand of the Father and He's interceding for us. The Holy Spirit intercedes on our behalf. That's what Romans 8 would tell us. He's praying for us in the midst of our storm. Jesus prays for you in our trials, in our difficulties. He's always watching. The storm may seem insurmountable to you and I, but He knows the solution. He knows the outcome, just like He did when He asked Philip. He's sovereign. And that's really how we overcome our fears and how we overcome our anxieties is we remember our theology. Don't let that word scare you. Theology, it just simply means our study of God. Theo means God. Ology means study of. And so the, we remember in those moments that God is both omniscient and omnipotent. Omnipotent. He is all-knowing and He is all-powerful. He is in control of all things. And so He is in control of this storm as well. He knows the outcome. He is sovereign. And then verse 21 says, Then they willingly received Him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land where they were going. Now don't overlook that. That's another miracle. That's pretty cool. 
Jesus steps in the boat and they row one more time and all of a sudden they're on the shore. Oh, okay. God just goes, whoops. Not only does God rescue us from our fear, but He rescues us from our futility as well. And they weren't rowing against the storm and rowing against the storm and not getting anywhere. And when we invite Jesus into our hearts, when we invite Jesus into the boat, as it were, all of a sudden we're exactly where we need to be. He rescues us from our fear. He also rescues us from our futility. God's way is not always the easy way. Remember, He sent them into the storm. Go row across the sea. And yes, you're going to have a hard time for a while. I want you to work hard. But remember, I'm always watching you. And I'm going to use that storm to mold and shape, to strengthen your shoulders, to bear the labor that you have coming later on in life. God's way is not always the easy way. There are far too many preachers on television that would speak contrary to that. And I want you to hear my voice today to say that is not true. God's way is not always the easiest way. It's not always a life of roses. It's not always the, 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 the easy path. Just accept Jesus and you get your rose-colored glasses and you know money falls out of the sky and everything you have, you need, or you, need you have. And, and that's not the case at all. God uses storms in our lives to mold and to shape us. It's called the hammering process. You get that, right? If you want to be a, if you want to create a, a, a fine sword, you take a, a chunk of steel and you heat it and you heat it until it's red hot, until it's moldable and shapeable. And then you take that red hot metal and you place it on an anvil and you beat the snot out of it. Pounding it and pounding it and laying it out flat and laying it out flat. And then you cool it and you let it rest for a moment. Then you take it back to the fire and you heat it again. And then you put it back on the anvil and you pound it again. And you do that time and time again, that whole process, the hammering process. And then after time, you have a strengthened piece of steel. Stronger than, than it was in its original state. And honed by the master craftsman the way that he wants it. And that's how God molds and shapes our lives as well. We're heated in the fire, the trials, the difficulties, and then we're pounded on the anvil, hammering out the impurities and and strengthening us. We're cooled. We're given a moment of rest, and then we get to go through it again. God uses trials and storms in our lives to mold and to shape us. Don't run away from your trials. God wants to use them. Remember that He is watching us through them. He is there with us. In them. We should work hard. They were rowing against the storm, doing the best they could do. But we should not work in futility. God's way is perfect. Just to close today, I want to look briefly at the year behind us. It's the last Sunday of 2013. And for our church, it's been a hard year. Uh, a year of storms, a year of challenges, of great difficulty, losing our shepherd of 20 years, a great friend, a, a, a family member. And what I see in this difficult year is that as a church, we have been rowing and rowing and rowing 
And I imagine as you are, perhaps your shoulders are getting tired. My shoulders are getting tired. We're getting tired. But what I want us to hear today is that we're not rowing in futility. That God has used these storms, these challenging things in a mighty way in our hearts and in our lives. And I would venture to say that in these storms that us as a faith family have grown closer together than we ever have been. And God has knit our hearts together. And God is giving us uh, that foundation to, to do a mighty work on. And I am anxious. I'm, I am looking forward to what 2014 has to bring for our faith family, Calvary Chapel Columbus. I believe that God has laid a message on my heart that, that we are headed in a specific direction. And I look forward to sharing what that message is. I would encourage you to come Tuesday night if that interests you. This is going to seem almost countercultural, but I believe God would have us in a very specific place. But in these storms of 2013, what you and I have gained is a, a deeper appreciation of our God, a, a closer-knit family, and stronger shoulders because we've been rowing and rowing. And what that means is God has more prepared for us. God wouldn't just waste these storms so that we have nothing to show for it. So I, I actually do look forward to anticipate what we have in store for us as we turn the corner into 2014. God is good. We trust in Him. Every situation, every experience. Amen? Amen. Let's stand. Let's close in prayer. Jesus, we thank You that You are ever-present. Even in the midst of our difficulties and our storms, even in the midst of the trials and the situations that You have us in, Lord, You are molding and shaping us, Lord. And we don't want to waste a single moment, a single day. We want to be good stewards of all that You have given us. God, I'm so grateful for Your Word. And I thank You for this faith family, Lord. As I look over these people, I, I love them. And I'm so grateful, God, that You have knit us together. Continue to mold us and shape us. Continue to strengthen us, God, to make our shoulders stronger, that we might bear the burden that You would place on our lives to, to be a beacon of light in this place, to shine brightly for You, O oh God, as we move forward on the foundation that our Good Shepherd Dave Brown has laid for us, God. We want to simply teach the Bible simply. We want people to come to You, O oh God. But we want to know You more. We want to be more in love with You. I'm so grateful, Lord. Continue to guide and direct us. Keep us safe until we can meet again. And now we sing we love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.